Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Titus. Uh, Titus. And we'll be looking at verses 5 through 9 today. If you're visiting with us, I would encourage you to use the blue Bible and the pew pocket in front of you. You'll find the text on page 998 if you're using that Bible. Titus 1, verses 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This week, I discovered a rather humorous job advertisement in which a church was seeking the perfect pastor. To introduce the text today, I thought it would be appropriate to share some of the highlights of this ad. It starts off, we're looking for a pastor who, and I'll just jump to the second one on the list, preaches exactly 20 minutes and follows it with an invitation in which everyone is convicted but no one is offended. The fourth item on the list, he needs to be 27 years old with 30 years of experience. I particularly like number nine, they um, were interested in his hairstyle. They said that he should have hair parted in the middle, straight on one side and wavy on the other with a balding spot on top revealing his maturity. Number 11, he smiles constantly with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously at his work. Or this one, I think I have seen before. Invest 25 hours a week in sermon preparation. 20 hours in pastoral counseling. 10 hours in meetings. 5 hours in emergencies. 20 hours in visitation and evangelism. 6 hours in funerals and weddings. 30 hours in prayer. 12 hours in correspondence. And 10 hours in creative thinking. Number 15, he has perfect kids. And then number 18. He's talented, gifted, scholarly, practical, popular, compassionate, understanding, patient, level-headed, dependable, loving, caring, neat, organized, cheerful, and above all, humble. (laughs) At times, it seems that um, we're not going to get that in our leadership. (laughs) So we settle. We know that there's this ideal that's out there somewhere, but we don't know anybody who lives up to it, so we just do the best we can with who we've got. But the question is, have we truly settled? What are we really supposed to be looking for in a pastor anyway? I mean, even as we read this list in Titus 1, 5 through 9, can anyone live up to this standard? I think there'd be some people even in here who would answer with a hard no. Or maybe you know some people who would answer with a hard no, as evidenced by the fact 
that they just wide-scale reject pastoral authority. For many, there's no pastor that's good enough. Or, someone had an experience with a pastor in the past, but he had broken their trust, and therefore all other pastors are disqualified from that point forward. Or, some people argue, and I've heard this recently, that elders or pastors are an invention of the religious elite to ensure job security, therefore I'm not going to follow that. Or, this is a common line, most pastors are hypocrites, so I'm going to focus on my personal relationship with Jesus. What do I need a pastor for? So, we have the spiritual lone ranger. The one who doesn't need any leadership, the one who's doing fine on their own, and ultimately what we have, is, especially in our culture in this day, is a strong current of people who just wholesale reject the right kind of leadership. But if that's one end of the spectrum... Rejecting the right kind of leadership, there's definitely another end of the spectrum as well we should be aware of. And that's the person for whom the opposite is true. Uh, anyone can meet the expectations of a pastor. Anyone meets the qualifications. So we all probably know people who say they're their own pastor. Or maybe you've heard this line, I'm the pastor of my home. I'm the pastor of my home. I don't need another pastor. Or... This is popular in our day and age of technology as well. Somebody runs a DVD series out of their house, and he and his buddies claim to be the pastors of their house church. Or, we have a lot of people who overlook the traditional, I mean, people who remain in traditional churches, but they overlook the character flaws of their leaders. And for them, it doesn't really matter how they live, as long as they can speak well, and as long as they've got some solid administrative abilities... It doesn't matter that he's been married a few times. It doesn't matter if he's dealt with some moral improprieties in the past. We're just going to overlook this because, after all, he's a great communicator. And so many churches overlook this list because they're so quick to restore morally disgraced pastors into the ministry. So, on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have those who accept the wrong kind of leadership. So if you find yourself in one of these categories, or if you, you know somebody who may fit into one of these, or actually regardless of who you are, we all need to really key in on Titus 1, 5 through 9 this morning. And I use the term all for a reason. We need to remember that Titus is written for our benefit. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus have inherited an unfortunate name over the years. For those of you who have grown up in church, you have been told that you should recognize these as the pastoral epistles. Anybody ever heard that? Well, the danger with that label is immediately when we come to one of these epistles, we think, oh, well, this is for pastors. Therefore, this is good for like specialty, elite talk. This is good to discuss on a seminary level, but this isn't going to help me in my daily walk with Jesus. And yet, what we need to remember is that Paul originally wrote the epistle of Titus to Titus, but not for Titus. I mean, let's remember, he was a close associate of Paul. He and Paul, according to verse 5, had already labored shoulder to shoulder on this island for the sake of the gospel. He knew what the mission was for Crete. 
He knew what his job was. Why then would Paul, a few weeks later probably, write him a letter reminding him of what they were already doing? It isn't because Titus has a short memory. It's because he wanted Titus to share this information with the churches on the island of Crete. It kind of reminds me of a restaurant owner calling a a meeting and bringing in all the employees, managers and servers. And with everyone present, he addresses his managers and says, we need to see an increase in dessert sales. You need to be more suggestive in your selling. You need to be asking about more desserts. Now he's telling his managers that. But ultimately, who's the one that's going to sell the desserts? It's the servers. He's speaking to the leaders, but he knows that he wants the whole organization to buy in. In a similar way, when we're reading Titus, we understand that yes, he's speaking to Titus, but he's saying it in such a way that all of us in the church would be able to buy into the apostolic program for the local church. So this isn't just for Titus, it is for us. And I could prove this to you from the epistle itself because he addresses all these things to Titus and you think that the whole thing's written to him and then you get on down to chapter 3, verse 15 at the very end of the deal and notice how he closes it out. Look in your Bibles, chapter 3, verse 15. All who are with me send, send greetings to you and then notice this. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. (laughs) Y'all, grace be with the whole group of you. Paul shows his hand. I'm not just speaking to Titus. I know he's going to read this in the presence of other people and that they should be responsible for this as well. So when it gets to the qualifications of an elder or a spiritual leader in a church, is that just something for the elders to know? Absolutely not. It's something that God intends for you to know. It's something that he intends for you to protect. It's something that he intends for you to support. So the question is, if we're all responsible for the health of the local church, for the carrying out of the apostolic mission, if this is one of our responsibilities, here's the question today, what kind of leaders do we look for? What are the non-negotiable qualifications of the authorized leaders of God's visible church? And that's what Titus 1, 5-9 is all about. Paul gives us a thorough, what I would call, local church leadership list. A local church leadership list that could be summarized under three headings. An exemplary home life, an excellent reputation, and effectiveness with the Word. Now to make sure you understand these, let's look at these verses even more carefully. The first heading that we're working from We'll see in verses 5 through verse 7. Leaders in the local church must possess an exemplary home life. Look at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children or believers are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For... An overseer is God's steward must be above reproach. Now, you'll notice that of the verses we read, this takes up about half of it. 
So even in my exposition today, probably the majority of the message will be devoted to these few verses. Because this is what Paul gives the most time to. What is it that he's most concerned about? What is it that he's first concerned about when it comes to selecting leaders for a local church? Their family life. The way that they interact with their family. He he says that they must be blameless in their home life, which consists of their relationship with their wife and the children. Now, the word blameless could throw us off because it could almost bring us back to that search for the perfect pastor we talked about earlier. (laughs) Uh, Many of us, when we hear the term blameless, or if your version says above reproach, we think, oh, well, that means perfection. Nobody meets this standard. True, if it meant perfection, nobody would meet this standard, but that's not what blamelessness means. Uh, Blamelessness just generally means free from scandal, one who can't be taken to court or formally charged with wrongdoing in such a way that it sticks. I heard a guy say one time that, well, the Greeks literally means uh, without a handle. It means it can't stick. Well, I looked through all kinds of lexicons this week, and I could not find any justification for that statement. But I will say, I like the illustration. What we mean by blameless is that accusations and charges don't stick. For those of you who are from up north, which I think is most of you, and you just happen to live down here now, (laughs) you know what it's like to be around snow. Now, with snow comes snowballs, obviously, and with snowballs comes wet clothing. Now, there's a couple of things that you can wear to guard yourself against the cold up north. Some of it is this like Gore-Tex like ski wear kind of thing that keeps you dry. Or you could just wear a bunch of sweaters, which is a horrible idea because you just you sweat, you're cold. And when the inevitable snowball fight occurs, which one would you rather be wearing? The Gore-Tex jacket or a bunch of sweaters? I'm going with the Gore-Tex because when somebody throws it, you can brush it right off. But you let a snowball hit a warm sweater, (laughs) and it's staying on there for a few days, it seems like. I mean, it just melts right on into it. What Paul is saying here is that the outer... Look, people will throw snowballs for sure. They're going to launch their accusations, but he should be of such a character that the accusations could be brushed off. You don't want it to be that you're going to put so-and-so up for leadership in the church, and then all of a sudden people are like, what? What? This guy's going to be a pastor, but doesn't he fill in the blank? But I thought he was a fill in the blank. You don't want that statement. So generally speaking, that's what blamelessness means, but Paul is actually more specific for us because he's going to show us exactly in what areas they should be blameless. Well, the first one that we see here is his family. The specific content of blamelessness is filled out with the phrases to come, and the first phrase we look at is probably... Literally, one of the most debated phrases in all the Bible, 7, second half of the verse, the husband of one wife. This could literally be interpreted a one-woman man. Those are the words in Greek taken straight into English. It's a hotly debated phrase. And let me just go ahead and acknowledge something this morning. It's the 5,000-pound elephant in the room. Look, the pastoral office... And your relationship with it is extremely personal. Some of you have had amazing experiences with pastors. Some of you have had horrible experiences with pastors. 
Therefore, when it comes to a list of qualifications like this, you would be tempted to read your experience into this list and say either, that guy was qualified, I know he was, he made an impact in my life, when he may not meet these qualifications. And at the same time, some of you may have had a horrible experience with a pastor in the past, and you're looking at this list trying to find something wrong with him. Please, Let's do good, sound Bible study this morning and not read our personal experiences into this text. Let's try to understand it first like the people on the island of Crete would have understood it, and then later on this afternoon we can dwell on whether or not it applied to our previous pastoral context. Can we do that? All right, with that in mind, what we're dealing with here literally is a one-woman man. All right, so what does it mean that he should be a one-woman man? Well, here's some things that are non-negotiable, like really clear. One, he's a man. It says, a one, the, the, the word is not the general word for anthropos like mankind. It is the specific, gender-specific word for man. So he must be a man. Not only that, he must be devoted to one woman. A lot of people... I pointed out, well, this means he couldn't have been a polygamist. Well, you need to understand that in that culture, polygamy wasn't a thing anywhere. Yes, in the Old Testament, some of the patriarchs sinned in that way. But actually, in Greco-Roman culture, you were expected to be married to one woman. Now, you may have committed adultery on that woman with multiple women. But still, at least formally speaking, they would only deal with one relationship at a time. So I want you to know he's not just merely ruling out polygamy. He's actually doing something more. He wants the people to understand that this is a guy, this is a man who's devoted to his wife. He is all about her. When you hear this guy's name, you think, oh, he loves his wife. He's devoted to her, which isn't just a formal thing, but it's also a functional thing. So it's a man, it's a man that's devoted to a woman, his wife, and it's a man who's sexually pure. So we all know men who technically are in covenant relationship with their wife, but may not be that way in their heart, as evidenced by the things that they view online or on TV, or evidenced by their relationships with other women at work and normally after work. He is a one-woman man. Now, that being said, I want you to be clear, he's not forbidding widows or widowers from ever holding a pastoral office. Paul makes it clear in Romans 7 that if your wife has died, you're no longer under the covenant obligation of that relationship, and you can move into a new one. At the same time, by the way, he's not forbidding single men from the pastoral office as well. Because Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 7 that it's actually better. Somebody could be more effective as a minister if they're not married. So he wouldn't actually, I mean, commend this. He himself was single, by the way. (laughs) But the outstanding question here for many of you is, what about divorce? What if the guy's divorced? Does that mean that he can never be a pastor? Well, even though this is potentially open to some debate, I want us to be clear on the main point of this text, and that is this. This man should be able to make the marriage relationship work in such a way that he's going to be an example to the flock. Generally speaking, a divorced man's probably not going to meet the qualifications 
of an elder on the basis of the fact that he may not be blameless. What I mean by that is, we all know that somebody claims to be the innocent party in the divorce. I don't think I've ever met a divorced person who said, you know what, it was, it was me, it was all me. Normally, somebody's bringing some baggage against somebody else, and there will be formal accusations. And therefore, if a church decides to bring a divorced man onto their eldership, what they're doing is opening themselves up to charges from the former family, the former wife. Could there ever be a situation in which a divorced person was an elder or became an elder? Maybe. And if you want to explore that further, come back to church on Wednesday night during Circle Back, and I'll debate that. But for the moment, what I want you to catch is the point of the text, and that is this. Here's a man who's devoted to his wife. He has an exemplary relationship with his bride. But not only with his bride, it extends also into his relationship with his children. The verse continues, And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And guys, I wish that the text was ordered a different way, but I have to say we move from controversy one to controversy two. This is why I said that this section was going to take a little longer. If the husband of one wife is one of the most debated phrases in all the epistles, welcome to the second most debated phrase in all the epistles. Because in many translations, even the ESV, it says his children are believers. But I want to point out something just to make this more complex for you, especially those of you who are using uh, the ESV. This can be helpful. You're going to see a little number in your Bible right beside that word believers, right? You see it there? Look in your Bible. And then follow that number down to the bottom. So for mine, it's the number four. And then I look at the bottom of the page, and you're going to see an alternate translation down there. All Bible translations do this. When it is a, a toss-up in the air, it could be translated one way or the other, you'll see this little note down at the bottom. Notice the alternate translation. It's either are believers or are faithful. Are faithful. The New American Standard and the NIV decided to go with believers. The New King James and the Holman Christian Standard Bible decided to go with are faithful. So the question for us today is, how do we determine what it means? Because this has huge implications for who our leaders will be. Do, does an elder's kids have to be Christians? Or do they merely have to be obedient? That's the debate. Well, to answer this question, just like you would answer any question, I would encourage you to look at the context in the sentence. Does Paul clarify what he means by faithful or believers in any way? Well, you continue reading and you notice that he does. Notice, he says, children are believers, children are faithful. And now the question is, which one makes more sense in the context of the sentence? Notice how it continues. And not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So we're going to fill out the rest of the sentence. But the question now is, what does debauchery or insubordination mean? Well, let me just define this very quickly. Debauchery is basically the total loss of control and restraint often associated with drunkenness or sexual indulgence. I mean, we're talking about, to use the southernism, hog wild. Like, they have totally lost it. They have no restraint when it comes to alcohol or sexuality. And they're rebellious. Rebellious is just the opposite of obedient. Instead of obeying, they do the opposite of that. Now, my children are with me in the 
congregation this morning, many of you, your children came with you to church today. There's the difference between children obeying or disobeying from time to time and being rebellious. Like absolutely revolting against your rule and reign in the house. And so what Paul is saying here is like, let's be really clear. Here's a guy who is so effective in his home that his children are either one of two things, believers or faithful. Now, here's the question. Which one's right? Well, which one makes more sense in the context? Here's what I know. If it meant believers, why in the world would Paul say, not open to the charge of debauchery or rebellion? Because we all know that if you're truly a believer, will you really be someone characterized by wild sexual sin? What would he even need to clarify that for? No, what he means here is faithful. Just as Jesus would describe the faithful servant, the the obedient servant, the one who does that which his master asks of him. This is the way it was commonly used in the New Testament world. This is the way that it's being used here because of the context in Titus. And I would also add that if you're ever confused about a phrase like this, one of the things that you can do is look and see if Paul addresses this same issue anywhere else. And guess what? He does address the qualifications of a pastor in another context, and that's 1 Timothy 3. And listen to how he describes this same thing in verses 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church? Does this make sense for you? So the ultimate point that we're getting at here is when we're looking for leaders... Whether it's a leader to support, or whether we know we need to be in a different place, or actually try to remove the leadership in our current context, this is what we know. He should have an exemplary home. He's devoted to his wife. He knows how to get his kids to obey. He loves his wife. He leads his kids well. And verse 7 explains it. For an overseer, there's another name for the pastor, an overseer, the episcopon, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Notice that a pastor is literally an overseer. Now, we use that term even in our own day. Supervisor, right? Super above, visor, see. This is someone who looks over what? And I wish the ESV was more clear, but the term here is God's steward. But the term translated steward there literally comes from two Greek words meaning house and law. (laughs) Home and law. It's not just talking about a steward like a servant, even though he is that, but it's particularly referring to the Greco-Roman office of a household manager. Now, we don't have these, but we do. They're called moms. (laughs) But in the Greek world and in the Roman world, there actually was a position for the slaves in which one would oversee all the finances and the education of the children. Like, there was somebody in charge of that. That's a pretty cool job. Well, no, it's not a pretty cool job. That's a lot of responsibility, but it's a pretty cool one to have in, like, the house. So this is somebody who made sure that the kids were well-educated and made sure that there was food on the table and made sure all the money was taken care of. All those things that cause you so much headache in your meetings together as a family. Budget and child-rearing. One person took care of it all. (laughs) Pretty good deal. Ultimately, though, the household manager was just that. He was a manager. He didn't own it. He just ran it. And in a similar way, notice what Paul is saying here. The pastor, 
He is an overseer. He's a, he's a household manager of a family. Now, this has huge implications for us because Paul doesn't describe the church as a nonprofit. He doesn't describe the church as a corporation. He doesn't describe the church as a business. He describes the church of God as a family. And because of that, its leaders must be family men. Because ultimately, what's happening here on Sundays and throughout the week is a family affair. We don't just need men with good business acumen. We don't just need men with good communication skills. We need men who know how to lead a family. That's what's being required. And it's totally logical. It makes all the sense in the world. If God views this as a family, well, now these qualifications really line up. Think about it. If a man can't show exclusive devotion to his own bride the most tangible and clear of all earthly relationships, how will he preside over his relationship to the bride of Christ? And, if he doesn't have influence with his own children, that see his way of life most intimately, and owe their allegiance to him most naturally, how will he ever lead the children of God, children of God who don't know him as well, and children of God who don't owe him the same natural allegiance? It's a package deal. Dear church, the accomplishment of the mission will not happen apart from leadership who possess an exemplary home. This is what we're looking for. Now again, not a perfect home. Not one without faults or failures or weaknesses. It doesn't say perfect kids. It doesn't say an all-star marriage. It says he's devoted to his wife. He keeps his kids under control. You know what this shows me? I think there's a lesson for us all here. Is that we should prioritize our homes because they are the fountainhead of all ministry we will ever do. Excellence in the domestic sphere will set us up for success in the church sphere as well. Some of you, I love your passion and the, the way that you serve so sacrificially. The, the, the way that you're just out there and the way that you meet people and the way that you come to this church and the way that you serve and the way that you contribute. And I want that to continue, but hear me well. You will not succeed here in this church if you are not succeeding at home. This doesn't just apply to pastors. We all know the pastor who spent way too much time on the road, traveling, speaking, you know, ministering to everybody else's kids, but ignoring his own kids. Everybody knows that extreme. But if it's true of the pastor, may I also say it's true of the people? How easy it would be for you to want to succeed in every particular realm. You want to do awesome at work. You want to have a good reputation. You want to be awesome at church. And you want to contribute to other people. But you could be burning out your home. And what he says here is, keep in mind, you will never be greater with people than you are with your own family. Protect your home. I think, that our church does a pretty good job with this insofar as we don't load up your calendar with stuff every night of the week. We have expectations for our members on Sundays, and we encourage people to come out and pray with us on Wednesdays. But outside of that, we are deaf on trying to just put superfluous things on the calendar. Why? Because we want you to minister to your homes. You need time to be able to live this out in the context of your relationships with your own children, with your own wife, with your own 
family, friends, and sphere of influence. So, we keep in mind that we want to protect our homes if we want to serve well. But may I also say, and this is so helpful for many of you, keep in mind that the church is the family of God. We relate to one another here as a family. God is our Father. That's why Jesus said, call no man Father. I am not Father. I am not priest. I am not the rabbi. Nor are the pastors here. I want you to know something. Even though we may manage the household of God on His behalf, we're still brothers in Christ. We're still part of the family too. And because of that, we need your help. Elders may rule on behalf of God, but they do not rule perfectly like God. So yes, hold the men in leadership at this church to this standard. But help us with this standard. Continue to encourage us. Continue to pray for us. And may we all serve one another with, to ensure excellence in our homes as a base for evangelism and encouragement to the church. So the point is that the local church leadership list is pretty simple so far. Right now we know we're looking for a guy that possesses an exemplary home life. But we'll also see that God requires leaders of His church to possess an excellent reputation. An excellent reputation. Look at the second half of verse 7. He says, after He reminds us about blamelessness, He says, He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Now let's stop there. As he's expanding his definition of blamelessness, now he's dwelling into the area of personal character. Not just the skill at home, but what he's known for. And what I want you to notice is that Paul's more concerned about who the guy is than what the guy can do. That's very important. Paul is more concerned about who the guy is than what the guy can do. Godliness should be considered before gifting. Godliness should be considered before gifting. Godliness should be considered before gifting. That, means, that does not mean gifting does not matter, but godliness should be considered before any gifting. Notice he gives us five vices, seven virtues. These are the things that you want to stay away from when you're looking for a local church leader. You don't want an arrogant guy. Someone who has a self-loving spirit. One seeking to gratify self and not others. Someone who's all about himself. Quick-tempered. Stay away from that. The guy with the short fuse. I'm mad to say that this person with a short fuse isn't good for any leadership, much less leadership in the local church where you're dealing with people. A drunkard. Doesn't take a Greek scholar to figure that one out. Doesn't mean that he never drinks. It means that he is not an alcoholic. He is not controlled by substances. Notice my 21st century definition. He is not controlled by substances. And I hate that I have to say this, but in our generation with opioids running rampant, it would also be important for me to say that it could be prescribed substances. I think that the principle of alcohol extends beyond that which is liquid. He shouldn't be violent. I grew up in a church that used the King James Version of the Bible. I really love the King James Version of this better than anything. No striker. A striker. I, that's just so vivid. You don't want a guy that gets in a fight with other people. Like, he shouldn't strike people. Like, if he, if he hits people, like, he's disqualified. <laughs> I don't know if that was a thing in, in Crete. But I think the general principle, though, is even more than that. It's not just he doesn't get in fistfights, but he's not violent. He's, he's not a bully. 
He doesn't push himself around. He's... And then the last one. He's not greedy for gain. That was easy. Greedy for money. I say this, you can tell a lot about a man by the way he regards money. And I assure you that we would never want a man in position of leadership in this church who loves money at all costs. Typically, the man who loves money doesn't love his family that much. You can only be passionate about a couple of things. And I know many a man who has sacrificed his children on the altar of success and has been put into a position of leadership because they thought, look what this guy could do in his business. Imagine what he could do in the church. And guess what happens? His love for money in his everyday life infiltrated his love for money in the church and some scandal typically ensues within five to ten years. It isn't just sexual scandal that can rock a church. It is also financial scandal. When the wrong people get in the wrong places and start pulling the wool over people's eyes and taking money, it happens all the time. And he says, you better be careful that you don't have a guy that's hungry for money. I would say, just by looking at these five vices, if I had a dog, I wouldn't even let a guy like this watch my dog. Much less my finances or my children. And he says, look, you may have some uber-gifted guys out there. You may know some people with talent that's through the roof. But if they're characterized by any of these things, stay away from them. They're not an option. But it's not just vices. There's virtues. There's, there's positive things you should see. Notice that word but. is a strong adversative in the Greek language. We're switching directions now. But hospitable. A lover of strangers, literally. It means he welcomes people into his home. He's warm. You don't want a mean, stodgy person. You want somebody that's warm. Uh, someone who loves what is good. I've always wondered what that means. Love what is good. And I just, Paul keeps it general for a reason. It, he, this either means he loves good people or he loves good things. As opposed to bad people or bad things. And I tried to think through ways that I use this phrase in my own life. And I get it. You, we, we say all the time, those are good people. Or he's, he's a good person. This, well, this is what we want. We want a guy that, he's with good people. He does good things. He's self-controlled. Now, that word is uh, mainly referring to the mind. He's, he's somebody that's sensible. He's somebody that can keep his emotions under check and like think clearly. And then upright or righteous. Uh, ethical. He's a man of integrity and in dealing with others. He's a straight shooter. He's fair. And then here's one that probably, if we were writing a list today in the 21st century of what would be required for a pastor, I think this would probably be one of the first ones we would drop. And yet it's on the list anyway. The text says that he is also holy. Holy. It's just a term for pious or devout, godly. And we don't like that because for us, that's what makes pastors awkward. There's this mysterium with them, you know, like they have this unique walk with the Lord and we feel uncomfortable around them. And most people are like, I want a pastor that's earthy. I want a pastor that's approachable. Well, earthy and approachable is not one of the things. You actually do want a guy that's godly because God intends for you to be that way as well. He should have a close walk with God. And then also, he should be self-controlled. Now, if the former... 
self-controlled there. It deals with the mind. Disciplined here deals more with the body. He's someone who can make himself do what he needs to do. He's disciplined. No offense, I'm not trying to target anything or anybody. I don't have anyone in particular in mind. But I do remember regularly as a kid having these evangelists come sweeping through our area. And they would be preaching against like everything under the sun. I mean, like they just knew how to like make you feel horrible. But the odd thing was, they weighed 500 pounds. And it just, like, it, there seemed to be a disconnect with me. Like, if this guy wants me to stop doing these things, why can't he put down his fork? <laughs> Y'all must have had some similar experiences. Now look, if somebody's got a thyroid problem, all right, we're going to take them off the table here. But I will say this, a pastor, generally speaking, I mean, he doesn't have to be Charles Atlas, but he should be in control of his body. He should be able to make himself do that which he needs to do. And in a profession like this, and in a role like this, where you don't have that much accountability, where you don't have somebody looking over your shoulder all day long, you want to make sure that you have the kind of guy that's going to get things done even when no one's looking over his shoulder. You need a self-controlled man. Again, I would point out that this kind of thing isn't mind-blowing. I don't think this... This is a new revelation for any of you. Uh, the, the, the phrase that is posted all over the hallways of elementary schools in the United States, character counts. Character counts. It really does. Character does count. A few months ago, I had to... I was in a desperate spot. I probably should have called somebody in the church. I didn't want to inconvenience anyone. I don't remember what it was or how it happened, but I ended up on care.com. Now... I wanted to find somebody to help Tanya with some stuff at the house and to watch the kids. Again, should I have called somebody in the church? Yes, probably. But I didn't want to inconvenience, and so I went on care.com. It's an interesting site. If you've ever used it, you have to give me your email address to use it, but you can get the idea. If you need somebody to care for something, there's supposedly this whole list of candidates that can help you. Now, one of the interesting things about all the profiles is the people list their skills and abilities, and then they have reviews. Now, if I was going to pick someone to be a nanny, Let's say that I wanted somebody to come in and help Tanya with the house and the children to be like the Greco-Roman household manager. If I had the discretionary income to throw it at that, um, you could imagine me looking for a care.com profile with a talented person. I would want somebody that's been like CPR certified. I would want somebody that was like a registered dietitian. Uh, I'm looking for a Rhodes Scholar. I want somebody with a BA in home economics from an elite school, Right? So those are gifts, those are abilities, those are certifications. By the way, I didn't find any of those. But I noticed that everybody did list like their things. But could you imagine if somebody had all those things, but in the reviews you saw words like selfish, short-fused, addicted to substances, prone to violence, unashamed thief. I don't care if they are a Rhodes Scholar. They're not watching my kids. Now you're laughing at that. You're like, that's so obvious. And yet, when it comes to the local church, we think, he's got a master of divinity from such and such. He used to pastor at a church of 6,000 people. And yet, in his profile reviews, if you will, the words that come out of people's mouth, you hear things like selfish, loves money, short-fused, 
Church, never be deceived by someone's gifting. Character counts. May I say that the opposite is also true? If I was going to follow through with the care.com profile and I didn't see that anyone had a BA in home economics and I didn't see that someone had CPR certification and I, they didn't tell me that they were a registered dietitian, but if their reviews said things like hospitable, good-hearted, sensible, upright, self-disciplined, godly, I think I'm going with that one. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for men, not with perfect character, but men with exemplary character. I know that we think that the local church leader should be the jack of all trades. We ask questions like, how great of a preacher is he? But who cares if he's not a godly man? How dynamic of a leader is he? Who cares if he can't be trusted? If his own study of Scripture doesn't make him a man of character, how will it ever make you a man or woman of character? If he can't figure out how to live this book, how in the world will he ever help you in that? So before we listen to an elder's sermons, we listen to his life. Since this is the baseline of leadership, what Paul is doing here is communicating the value of character in the life of the church. This man's handle on the word should have an impact on his behavior And you know the old phrase, water never rises higher than its lowest source. We want to look for men that will lead us in godly living. God does care about the fruit of your life. So, local church leadership list. When we see it here in Titus, it tells us that we should select or support elders who have an exemplary home, who have an excellent reputation, and finally, elders who are effective with the Word. We're looking for elders who are effective with the Word. Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I would point out to you that this is the only explicit ability on the list. The only ability on the list. Everything else is character. The one thing that he has to be able to do, at least in the way that Titus puts it, is he must show an allegiance to the word... And he must have an ability with the word. The allegiance is clear to see. He's someone who is clinging to the faithful message that accords with the teaching. Now that's a kind of bulky phrase. But let me just tell you in in its basics. Paul is talking about the faithful teaching, the trustworthy word that was passed on to them. Well, what was the trustworthy word that was passed on at Crete? It was the gospel. Paul was actually in there so quickly, he didn't have time to develop a full systematic theology of everything. We know from our text last week that there were some basic things that Paul was emphasizing. What were they? Well, he was calling the elect to faith. He was clear about salvation. We also said last week that he wanted people to learn the truth so that it accorded with godliness. All right, So not just salvation, but sanctification, Christian growth. And then the third thing was that they would have the hope or the confidence of eternal life. What's that? Glorification. The final phrase of the Christian life. This guy is someone who knows the gospel and its implications on someone's salvation, how they get saved. He knows how to bring the gospel to bear on someone's walk with God and their life. And he also knows how to instill confidence for them in the end. Eternal hope. Now what I want to get to is that it is the gospel that he must cling to. That's what we want him to be. 
He is not someone necessarily with a seminary degree. He is someone who knows the gospel well and knows and, and, and holds on to it for his own life. And now at this point, everybody should be thinking, well, isn't that all of us? I mean, like, shouldn't we all be loyal to the Word? Yeah, yeah, true. But this guy's a little different because it doesn't end with just a personal loyalty to the Word. It extends from that to an ability to take that word and to build up or to tear down with his teaching. To build up or to tear down. He isn't just loyal to the word, but he knows how to leverage it so as to encourage people in their faith and help them become more like the Lord. And he knows how to take people who contradict the word and tear them down. Not just insult them. What I mean by that is take the error challenge it, refute them, expose them, correct them. There's a positive and a negative aspect. He has to be able to do this. And what he's doing here is he ensures that members of the household are learning the gospel and living the gospel and eliminating threats. So, let me be clear on what this ability is not. A leader in the local church does not have to be a gifted public speaker nor does he have to have a dynamic personality. I want to be so clear on this. Because sometimes we make the standard too high. Have you ever heard Paul give his testimony of his ministry at Corinth? I would encourage you to read it at some point this afternoon. We don't have time to look at it now. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-4. through 4. Here's the, the short version. He says, I was stumbling all over my words, and I was with you with much weakness. I didn't have much presentation. But he was able to expose truth. He was able to communicate. I would also say that it does not mean that he has to have a seminary degree. The Puritans, whom I love, by the way, I love to read Puritans, these godly divines from the 17th and 16th centuries. They actually came up with a list of what was required for any leader in the local church When they convened at Westminster, it was called the Westminster Directory for the Ordination of Ministers. You've got 50 of like some of the most brilliant minds in all of England getting together and say, all right, what does a pastor have to be? I'll just go ahead and tell you. This is why I'm not a Presbyterian. I do not agree with this list. Here's what every pastor in the Presbyterian church has to be able to be. He is required uh, to exercise skill in the original tongues of Hebrew and Greek. And to be able to translate some assigned portion of the Hebrew or Greek into Latin. And he had to have a knowledge of logic and philosophy and apologetics and church history. And he had to preach publicly in front of the presbytery. And he had to argue all of these things in Latin. All right. I think we've put the bar a little too high at that point. What the text says is that he holds to the faithful word. And he uses it in the life of people to build them up or to correct them. If they're wrong. Sometimes this can happen in a one-on-one setting. Sometimes this happens in a small group setting. Sometimes this happens in a seminar or like a Sunday school setting. And sometimes it happens from behind a pulpit. But the question is, does he have an impact with other individuals through the Word? Now, let's be clear. This doesn't mean that any Tom, Dick, or Harry has the ability to teach. I know some people who are godly men who are faithful to the word, but I don't understand a word that comes out of their mouth, whether it be public or private. 
If he's not clear, if you're not growing from this person's ministry in your life, okay, that person probably shouldn't be an elder. But at the same time, let's not limit eldership to the guy that stands behind the podium every Sunday. It is someone who brings the Word of God to bear in the life of individuals. I have to say that I'm grateful for our elders here. And this passage reminds me that associate pastors, you know what, they're elders too. And we have some great ones. They excel at bringing the Word to bear on different levels, and they do it with excellence. And our lay elders, they're elders too. I would give you this analogy to help you with this. The water from the volunteer fireman's fire hose is just as effective as that of the paid fireman. If my house is burning down, I don't care if it's the full-time guy or the volunteer guy, just get him to my house. (laughs) I love the fact that the lay elders at our church are proficient with the Word. And do they do this every week? Of course not. But they know how to bring the Word of God to bear on the lives of our flock. And they are just as much leaders and just as qualified as I am. And we can never forget that. So, our local church leadership list is now complete. We're looking for an exemplary home, an excellent reputation, and effectiveness with the Word. It's pretty simple. Now, knowing these basic standards are essential for the health of the church is something kind of like knowing the basic standards of whether or not you'd eat at a certain restaurant. And we all have this experience, especially in an area like Naples where new restaurants pop up overnight, especially when a new season comes. The old ones shudder, the new ones flutter. I mean, they, and so everybody goes and they try to find their place. Now, without ever taking a food safety course, All of us in this room have some general criteria operating in our mind before we ever step into a restaurant on how to know if this is a place if we'll ever eat again. For some of you, it is something as basic as the sanitation score. I don't care how cool it looks, if it's got a B, I'm probably not going back. It'd have to be pretty compelling. And we don't even think, hey, did you see the sanitation score? It's just something like we looked for accidentally. Not only that, but we also know some basic standards of sanitation. Like if we're in the bathroom and we're washing our hands and we see that the server went and used the bathroom and he walked right out, well, you know what? Again, didn't have to take the formal class, but I've got it in my mind. I'm not coming back to this place. (laughs) Or one of the worst, if you're a server here, please don't ever do this. If I ask for a cup of ranch and you have your fingernail in it when you give it to me, bad move. You obviously don't know how dirty your fingernails are and I'm not eating that and I don't want to eat at your restaurant. I mean, it could be things like that, or it could be something as basic for those of you who are technologically savvy as a Yelp review. And you know, like, there's a certain star level that I'm just not going below. My point is, and this will sound rather humorous, but I mean it to be, friends don't let friends eat at bad restaurants. I mean, we, we just, we have a bad experience somewhere, and we tell everybody about it. Look, I was in food service. I know that if somebody has a poor experience at a restaurant, they'll tell ten people. If they have a great experience at a restaurant, they only tell three. That's because we, we don't like food poisoning. We don't want anybody to be exposed to the dangers of a horrible restaurant. Now again, nobody ever sat us down. Nobody ever told us exactly what to look for. We just know, I don't want anybody to suffer under that. And yet, in a similar way, what Paul is saying here is, Those of you on the island of Crete, you need to be clear. None of you should ever have to suffer under sorry leadership. 
It's devastating. It's worse than food poisoning, I promise you. And there's just some basic things you need to keep in mind. You need to look at the guy's family life. You need to look at his character. You need to look at his competence with the Word. Friends don't let friends go to poorly led churches. This is our responsibility. This isn't shop talk just for other pastors. This is all of us. We should know what we're looking for in local church leadership. We should be crystal clear about it. And we should help the hundreds of thousands who are languishing under poor leadership in other churches. Now, the natural implication here could be, oh, Justin, are you saying that this is the only church in town with the right kind of leadership? Absolutely not. You hear me pray for other churches every week. I know we're not the only one that's trying to be faithful in this area of leadership. But I do know that a poor leader or an unqualified leader can cause a world of chaos and destruction, and people need to get out of those places or fix it. And may I say, just because Faith Bible Church is faithful now doesn't mean it will be forever. It will be your responsibility and our responsibility to ensure that the future leadership of this church lives up to these standards. So, Justin, what do we do with this, practically speaking? I think there are three things that you could do either this year or even this week in light of this text. The first, for some of you, you just need to embrace it. You need to embrace the concept of local church leadership. This is God's plan. If you were just trying to go out and fly solo and do it on your own, you were directly defying the way that God set it up. Am I saying that this is the most important thing in your spiritual walk? Absolutely not. Am I saying it's unimportant? Absolutely not. Guys, let's be honest. We need a category somewhere between the most important thing in the world and not important at all. And what I'm telling you is that this is important. And you should give it attention. And if you're trying to just fly solo and do it all on your own, you are operating outside of the explicit plan of God. I'm not saying get under any leadership. I'm saying get under qualified leadership. I'm not saying you have to go to this church. I'm saying go to some church in which the men line up with these standards. Some of you need to embrace this. Some of you may need to enlist in this. I really believe that as I'm teaching this morning, that God has put a desire on some of your hearts that says, I want this. I want to be a part of this. I want to lead in this way. I want to have this type of influence in a local church. You want, you want to know what Paul would say to you if he heard you? He'd say, you desire a good thing. 1 Timothy 3.1 It's okay. That's good. And if that's your desire in this church, I assure you, we need leaders. We will need leaders as the church continues to grow. And there are churches all around this world that need leaders. Maybe for some of you, God would even be calling you into some form of vocational ministry What do you do with that? Talk to one of us. Talk to one of us. Let's get together this week and talk about what that would look like. How you could have spiritual leadership and influence in this church in the future. We're always looking for a few good men. And then finally, for those of you who are visitors and those of you who may be non-Christians, here's the last word for you. You need to engage with some local church leadership. You need to engage with some local church leadership. Some of you are scared to death to talk to a pastor because you think he's going to be harsh and judgmental and he hates you and he hates people. It's it's not that way. 
I, I know that we can give off that, that vibe sometimes, but here's the deal. You can know this. If you're visiting here today, we long for your spiritual best interest. I don't give a rip about your money. Don't need it. Let me tell you what I care about. Christ being formed in you. And if your life is a living hell on earth right now because of all the poor decisions that you've made, I want to take the word of God and bring it to bear in your life and help you fix it. That's what every one of the elders at this church want. Some of you have been running from the gospel. You've been running from spiritual conversations. I'm telling you today, in light of this, if I'm truly this, if the elders at this church are truly this, you can engage with them. And let them tell you about the hope that the gospel can bring. And about how the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, when trusted in, can change your life forever. That's what we want for you. That's what local church leadership aspires to. That's what they desire. Engage with us today. Send us an email. Talk to me at the door. We want to serve you in this way. So which does God want for you today? Is it to embrace local church leadership? Is it to enlist in it? Or is it to engage with it? Let's pray. Father, I pray that our church would properly value spiritual leadership. Give us discernment to only... Lord, follow and support the right kind of men. Keep us, who are currently leaders at this church, qualified. Protect us. And at the same time, we pray that You would raise up new leaders or through this church who would pastor and lead in other places, who would pastor and lead in this flock. And finally, for those who are visiting who are so scared to talk to a pastor who, who need to make things right with you, I pray that you give them the courage to speak to one of us even today so that they'd repent, believe the gospel, and be saved. Or do that work that only you can do, and do it now. In Jesus' name, amen.